0: Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, where we study how authoritarians think, the strategies and tactics they use, and how to successfully resist. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this episode is about public figures, especially artists and creatives, and the challenges they come up against when encountering authoritarianism. As you'll see, it can be a choice between your values and your career. How do you answer a challenge like that? Sometimes you can be smart enough to keep both. The discussion was recorded on the fringes of the Oslo Freedom Forum in May, so there'll be an end note where I talk about what's happened since, particularly in Hong Kong, as well as the reason for our long hiatus on the Arab Tyrant Manual. By the way, you'll also hear Jamila Raqib around the 25-minute mark. She's executive director of the Albert Einstein Institute and one of the leading authorities on nonviolence. You may remember her from episode 26, and you'll be hearing a lot more from her soon. Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. I'm still at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway and today I'm joined by two really inspiring public figures and artists. One is Denise Ho and the other is Amar Wakad. And Hong Kong and Egypt are two really fascinating countries which have had very differing experiences with authoritarianism so i'd like to just get a quick summary from each of you about what's going on in your country for the people who are new to it
1: yes so hong kong has been a british colony since a hundred years ago and in 84 we had a joint declaration signed between the chinese government and the british government which promised Hong Kong back to China in 1997 because we were a very free and autonomous city as a British colony. And so since the return, we were promised the one country, two systems model, which meant Hong Kong would be autonomous within China. But since the return, it has been not the case and many things has changed and media freedom is no longer there. And many activists are prosecuted for peaceful assembly and uh, protests and some even sentenced up to eight years. Very young activists. You know, to put that in context, Hong Kong has never been a place where we had revolutions or anything. Like We never had to fight for anything. Everything was given to us. So the fact that now young activists are being prosecuted and put in jail, it is a very big blow to the city. Since um, this generation, they started the Umbrella Movement in 2014. And so it worsened since then. And uh, just recently, there has been extradition law that is pushed out by the government, which meant if that law is passed, then China could... Anytime, time if they feel that someone violated their China laws, they could adopt someone from Hong Kong and you know they would put them on trial in, in China, which means they would probably be instantaneously prosecuted.
0: So yeah. in reality, there is no one country, two systems. It's one country, one system now. Yes, that. it's
1: basically that, you know, the, the whole concept is just not there. And Amar, of course, you're from
0: Egypt.
2: Yes, I'm from Egypt. As most people would know that Egyptian people... Uh, made a revolution in 2011 to call for democracy and freedom. And it is sad to see that the situation today is far from what everyone wanted in 2011. We are actually living in a, in a classical military dictatorship where even the right to express your opinion is not there, the right to demonstrate. We have a lot of political prisoners all Started in 2015 with, with the military uh, strongman, Al Sisi, when he came to power. He started basically a campaign against dissent. And first it started with Islamic political figures that were in power before him. And when he was done with that, he expanded the horizons of his campaign to include also other intellectuals and other people who are from left wing, liberals, uh, all other uh, political colors, basically, in society. And some reports by human rights organizations estimate a number of 60,000 political prisoner in Egypt, which is a huge number and something that people were not really uh, prepared for. So uh, today, Egypt has a lot of generals running a lot of responsibilities, whether it is governors or heads of institutions. Even in my field, drama and film, they have basically taken over all the companies of production and and, and distribution, and they are the ones censoring and allowing, and even they're starting to write censorship doctrines and what should be produced in drama and what should not be produced in drama. They are centralizing everything as if media and art has become propaganda arm for the military rule. If you look at the productions that have been done this Ramadan, which is a season where a lot of TV series get produced in Egypt, they are all about the purity and honor of being an officer, the purity and honor and patriotism of defending the, the idea of a military state or a police state. So Egypt today is a place where a lot of people are looking very deprived and want to basically leave and that's very dangerous I think because in 2011 everybody wanted to go to Egypt and today we are seeing the extreme opposite.
0: So two countries on two different continents with two very different governance systems, one is known to be very economically affluent and the other is known to be a lot less so but very similar experiences by two artists in censorship. And I'm interested in what you're saying about the regime trying to control your field of art, which is drama. Do you see the same thing in Hong Kong at all in music? Yes,
1: absolutely. That, that has been happening since 1997 because the China market has arisen since then. And so many filmmakers and musicians, artists, like the top, top artists... They all go to the China market because of the revenue that they could get. So the result of this migration is that many films are not as creative and are very censored. Songs are censored. Well, no, I should say self-censored. Because in order for you to get into China, you cannot talk about many, many topics. Like I could give some examples. Like you cannot have films that talk about ghosts. You cannot have films that talk about religion, any sort of religion. And then the good guy cannot die. The bad guy cannot win. You know, LGBT issues, of course, are are taboo. So it is pretty ridiculous. And I remember having a film that I participated in in 2009. And the ending of the version in Hong Kong is completely different than the one in China. The one in Hong Kong, I, I was the bad guy, you know, somehow. And I ran with the money. And so in the end of the Chinese, Chinese version, they added this subtitle, which said, oh, actually, she was arrested in the end. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, you know, th- th- you can imagine how strange it would be when you have no creativity whatsoever in these domains of art. And you're both
0: here, I guess, because you both resisted that urge to censorship. Amar, you can't go back. What did you do?
2: i in all honesty i don't know but i have been vocal and yani i have been active in criticism of any sort of fascistic behavior by the state or by others and i have learned one day when i was abroad on a trip that i have a problem with the military prosecutor in egypt military and i'm an artist and i really didn't know what what happened and why and So I started to ask and try to get to know before I get into trouble, you know, what was wrong. And it was a very clear message to come back and you will know. (laughs) So I actually didn't have the time to go back and I didn't have the will to go back before I know. And I basically waited until I get any sort of information. A few months later, I received two verdicts one with five years in military prison and one with three years in military prison with two accusations. One insulting the state institutions and the other is publishing fake news. And I would presume, I'm not sure what are the details, but I would presume that that has to do with Tehran and Sanafir, the two islands that were given up for Saudi Arabia. Because I was actively against that because they were Egyptian islands and by court uh, order, they were in Egyptian island. And then something happened and the constitutional court had canceled this verdict and eventually they delivered it to Saudi Arabia. So I was extremely active about it. So maybe that's what they're trying to say, that Amr was basically active saying that two islands were Egyptian, but they're not. And I was not alone saying this, even the judicial system of Egypt said this. But to be honest, I really don't know But it's very obvious that these are our political accusations, insulting the state and publishing fake news. It is sad to say that, but it's something the state is doing regularly. They are insulting themselves and they spread fake news about everybody.
0: You don't see many artists in the human rights community, generally. And the typical advice for artists is to stay out of politics. Don't say controversial stuff and don't risk your career. And Denise, you kind of alluded to that when you spoke about the China market and how lucrative it is. What made you give that up? Was it difficult?
1: It was really the umbrella movement that happened in 2014. And the moment that I decided to not stay silent was when the Hong Kong police, they fired eighty seven tier gas bombs onto really peaceful, everyday Hong Kong protesters. Like just normal people. There were mothers and grandmothers and children in the crowds that were in support of the students that at that time were arrested and then, you know, detained. So to put this in context, Hong Kong has always been a very peaceful city where nothing political ever happens. Like everything that happened were, weren't on the news so that day the police they were trying to disperse the crowds and all these people that were on this very main highway of Hong Kong the six lanes were packed with almost a hundred thousand people I was at home because as an artist I drew a line I thought okay I would not pass that line I was on the border but then I was watching that live broadcast and then I saw all these students, young people running and screaming and then they were so afraid. And then I thought I cannot stay silent anymore as an adult, as a public figure. I needed to stand up for them. Because I thought they were doing the right thing. You know, they were asking for universal suffrage that was promised to us in the basic law and then which the Chinese government put rules onto it. And then they wanted to censor this universal suffrage in order for them to control Hong Kong for the next 50 years. So me, along with a lot of other Hong Kong people, we were awakened at that moment. And I, I just couldn't stay behind the curtains anymore. Uh, Amr, was it a similar
2: experience? More or less, yeah, yeah. It was the movement of 2011, the January Revolution, and I joined them, and it was a very fascinating experience where I saw people from the left, from the right, from Islamic background, from secular background, rich people, Poor people all in the same place all saying the same thing and it was a very moving and touching experience for me that in all honesty changed my life I just felt that I haven't been living before and I decided that this is my master in, in, in my career and my life this energy and this moment that we have to as artists embrace it and i've seen people getting killed for that to happen i have seen people soaked in their blood getting carried away in front of me i have helped people who are injured i i saw so many things that rooted the experience within my consciousness and after that i just couldn't take it out. I just woke up and slept every day and every night thinking of that very moment and of my responsibility towards the people that have been injured, that have died, that have lost their loved ones and also my belief that throughout my life I have been prepared, for that moment so that my role starts. I have a following and these following, I am not going to influence them into pettiness and weakness. I am going to influence them into what matters and into being strong. And this is what I came out with the experience of January, 2011. And I started, I first thing I did, I produced a film about the torture of the security forces. And it was a true story. It was the story of the brother of the director. He was captured by the police and tortured regularly. And then eventually they released him and told him, are well, sorry, it was a, a mix-up in your name. And sorry, it's the price we all have to pay to protect Egypt. And they just patted on his shoulder and let him go. They didn't even accuse him of anything. And seeing this man telling his story was extremely moving enough that we had to make a movie about it. And that movie actually opened in Venice International Film Festival. We were happy because we knew how to spread the story and the guys suffering became a good example of what we need to do. And ever since then, I have been accused of so many things. For a few years, I've been attacked. I have been called things that I'm not. I have been accused of being things which are very distant from who I am. And that never stopped me ever. And eventually, they did this with the military court. And I really don't understand their strategy because I, I'm not going to stop. That's not going to stop me uh, eventually they will stop I am sure of that.
0: Other artists and performers have chosen other paths some of them have chosen to remain silent and others have chosen to actively participate in legitimizing the authorities and making it more palpable to the public what's your perspective on those people because you both had an earlier career because you before you became political and I'm sure you both know some of those people personally and professionally. Does it anger you? Does it frustrate you? Do you understand and allow them to, you know, do what they must?
1: Well, you know, in Hong Kong, most of the celebrities, they just choose to stay neutral. Well, for me, there is no neutral. You know, as long as you don't speak up, then you are authorizing you know, some of the things that are happening and i have many friends who have stayed away from me since the umbrella movement and you know, for a time being that was really heartbreaking for me because those were very close friends and they just chose to you know keep their distance especially in public and then sometimes when you are in public events and then you see them and you know they they would say hi but then they would not want to take a photo with you, which is is very different from what it was before. And the thing that breaks my heart is that they're just so in their own spaces and they don't really know what is happening to the society, which later on, I tried to get into their perspective and I got out of my anger and frustration. And of course, there are those who are pro-Beijing camp and they would do loads of things that I can't really understand but then I think everyone has their own burdens or their own reasons so if I were to get into that frustration I, I think that would have eaten me up so I chose to just do my thing and then try to do it in a softer way so that they wouldn't be so reluctant by it and then for me, the music and the arts, it's, is the, the softer weapon, but it is very strong inside. And it could get through to those people who are very reluctant to the harsher politics. So for, for the two years following the Umbrella Movement, many people asked me if I wanted to go into politics, if I wanted to get into the Legislative Council. And I actually, you know, for for some time, I really thought about it, and then I contemplated the idea. But in the end, I chose to remain as the singer, celebrity person, because I think this is where we lack the voices, and so by using the music to do it, I think it, it is uh, something that we desperately need in Hong Kong.
2: More or less the same, I don't like to judge in general, I don't have the information to make a good judgment upon the behavior of other people, except I discriminate between a person or an artist who chose to be silent and an artist who chose to condone atrocities and defend them and find excuses for them. These are two different behaviors and I think there is no information that will make me accept the artist that condones and supports and finds excuses for atrocities and for the abuse of power. Ever since I received the verdict, I haven't had one actor, friend, or colleague that even called me to see How am I doing and how am I gonna deal with this? There are two explanations for that. Some of them probably think I deserve it. And some others are very scared to associate with me because the minute they actually call, it is registered on their account and on their phone that they have called and tried to reach me. So that might bring them questions or put them in a situation where they're vulnerable so i personally prefer not to judge people but i judge behavior i judge the outcome of what you have done to society now you have a person who's abusing people if you defend this person then i don't care about your reasons This is not a difference of opinion. There is the right of expression and the right of thought and the right of opinion. And that does not include difference of opinion on justice. Because I've been accused of double standards. You say freedom of speech and freedom of opinion. Yes, this is on things that are not already established to be crimes, you cannot have a difference in opinion about a killer. Do you know what I mean? He's a killer. He's a guy that kills and tortures people. And whether this is acceptable or not, that's the difference between a normal human being and a criminal. It is not a difference in opinion. It's a difference in ethics. It's a difference in values. And there are artists that have no ethics or values. And these artists, I am ashamed of them. And I have no respect for them. But other artists that are in different shoes and chose to not speak, we don't know their stories. And they haven't done the behavior that you should call it shameful.
0: You've both chosen to convey values through your art and send messages through art. And I'm wondering whether you think that is underestimated by activists as a tool of change. Generally, when people think activism or resisting oppression, they think street protests. They think being loud, being uncooperative. They don't often think creativity and building something to send a message.
1: Yes, totally. Hmm. There were opinions during the Umbrella Movement that art is useless. It came from very frustrated younger activists, because at that time, uh, during the, the movement, there were a few different camps. The one in Harcourt Road, it was filled with creativity, There you know, so many expressions of thought that we never saw in Hong Kong ever before. Like there were so many like sculptures, projections, there were movie showings, and then there were self-organized recycling systems because we don't have recycling systems in Hong Kong. I thought that was so creative and I, that got me so excited because I always thought Hong Kong was, and it is actually known for being a cultured desert, and we don't have a lot of very prominent and outspoken artists. But in fact, during that movement, we saw that we do have these people in the city. It's just that they are not known and then they don't have the space and the occasions to do that. After, I guess, one or two months when the government didn't respond to anything, some of the younger generations, they started saying that we should not have these arts and music in the streets because it is just useless and then doesn't serve to anything. So there were a lot of arguments And for me, it is saddening because Hong Kong is a city where we are educated to just be very goal-driven. We have to be successful economically and then we just don't do anything apart from being famous and rich. But then we saw this flexibility and the creativity during the movement and then we lost it after the movement ended. For me, it is because I'm based on my imagination and creativity that I could survive after the movement, after I was banned from China and I lost all sponsorships and the support of brands and businesses because I could create my own system. And that was why I still have my concerts and my art going on. And it was because of this kind of flexibility that the Chinese government could not shut me down. But I feel there is a coming back of this in the city right now. Because after five years, all the frustration, the disappointment and the discouragement, something is coming back. I have this feeling that people are recovering from their disappointment. And I feel that the answer is in the culture because there is nothing we can really do in the political scene as the hong kong government has a very tight grip on everything but then they cannot stop us from putting messages in music or movies or in written word so that is where the battleground is for me right now
3: yeah it's really interesting what you say because in the work i do which is really thinking about how resistance can be made more effective, what we can learn from the historical struggles. Uh, I think that when you have these sort of short-term defeats, there were institutions and capacities and skills that were developed during this resistance that exist there. They will reemerge in new ways. This is inevitable. And I think this is probably the great fear among both those opponents that you guys have identified. And we've seen this in case after case after case. And I think that the arts is a major one. So I think something has been created that can be reactivated for the next crisis. The question is, what are people doing in the meantime? And I think as long as the struggle continues, it's not over. The research backs this up. Some of the very recent research in this field that even with a so-called failed resistance movement it more often leads to a democratic transition within five years
2: yeah and if art was not relevant or was not effective then why are they sensory why are yeah. they you know what i mean yes. their behavior is a very major proof that art is a very precious tool of change even if it doesn't actually do the change it at least enables the environment for the change to happen. It's a scientific fact in behavioral change communication that the tools of behavioral change communications, you enable the environment for the behavioral change first. There are triggers for the change and the change has to be owned by the people. So what art does is basically enables this environment for the people to okay what 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 is why don't you want to change do you feel unsafe do you feel you're going to lose something or do you feel the ambiguity is not your game so art plays on that art starts telling you all right look this is a change that's cool look this is a change that's not ambiguous and keep bombarding people with all these messages in the art and of course you gotta have talent you gotta you gotta have the creativity you gotta have the the integrity in your artistic experience but eventually that motivates people makes people more conscious of the positivity of change rather than the negative uh, aspects of it And I think it's personally, this is why I'm an artist. I am in the world of art because I get inspired first of all. And that inspiration pushes me to influence people. Whether you want to give them a good song or you want to show them a good movie or a good painting, it's all you are making people think, making people take a decision later on their own Mm -hmm. art doesn't decide it doesn't do the change no people do the change it
3: empowers that
2: yes and every everyone who watches the movie or listens to the song goes home and puts his head on the pillow and starts thinking ah singing the song before he sleeps or (laughs) thinking of that scene and what this scene implies in his life and what if he was the hero of that scene and that in itself creates a possibility for the change that is safer and more aware
1: which is why it's so threatening because it's so subversive that's why they
2: call it soft power. power
1: yeah and the power of the internet is it is amazing right now because songs and movies that are put out there they could try to erase it but you know you cannot erase anything from the internet I have fans in China because my songs have been all taken down in China. And so I have fans, they use their own ways to upload my songs and then they will change the names. You know, they would change the name of the artist and then they would change the name of the song. and then. But actually, those are my songs. And I thought, you know, I was so happy when I saw that they were doing that on their own because people are actually fighters when... You show them that you can do it in your own ways. I do it my way. And then maybe you cannot copy my way, but you can invent your own ways to fight the authorities. And then
2: Rami, the Egyptian singer who took the stage a couple of days ago, said something very brilliant. He's like, once you produce your song, once you make your song, they can kill you but they can't kill the song, you know? And that's why it's very annoying for them and they (laughs) consider it very dangerous because it is something that they can't kill Mm because that's what they do. Mm -hmm. If they don't like it, kill it. But can you kill art?
3: And you also can't kill what it's intended to produce, which is unity and vision and imagination possibilities and resistance. Because if repression and killings are meant to make you stop what you're doing, then actually this backfires, right? Yeah. It doesn't work anymore.
2: No? Yeah. And the more you attack it, the more you lose people. Of course. And that's mm-hmm. why in Egypt, they were a bit smart. They bought everybody out. All right, you're a production company, you're a TV station, you're a, you're even a newspaper. All right, we're not going to stop you or, or close you down. No, we're going to give you money. But get mm. out. And eventually, they bought all of the television stations in Egypt are owned either by the government or by the intelligence companies. They're all affiliated by the government today. That was not the case five years ago. There was private sector. There was people who are independent today. And those who could not refuse to sell, they were blocked. So, all right, you can work, but you will not find his work in Egypt. You'll have to go outside. Even if it's online, your website is blocked in Egypt. You you will not reach the people of mm. Egypt. You reach other people if you want, but in Egypt, you're blocked.
1: Yeah, it's exactly the same thing that's happening in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. We have eight major newspapers. I remember the scene where... I was passing by a convenience store at the day after the Umbrella Movement. And then I saw all these seven newspapers, they had the same headline, you know, we succeeded in removing these protesters. And then there were just one, the Apple Daily in Hong Kong, that was pro-democracy. And you know, that image it stayed with me. It was so scary because it wasn't like that three four years before and you know, suddenly the world has changed we say it's being reddened like pro china and it's happening to all the tv outlets uh, to the radio stations and the ones that stay you know strong like the boss of apple daily has been detained also and then they try to block all the businesses from putting advertisements on it that is the same strategy mm. that all the tyrants are using.
2: Fascism as a one book. So how do we fight that? Burn the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we call the Iron Tyrant
1: Manual. Well, I think collaboration okay. is really important. Uh, not only within the city, the international world. It was really eye-opening for me, you know, these three days. Mm. Because in Hong Kong, we are quite enclosed. We are a very small society. And then, sometimes we focus too much only on our own problems. But then when you are taken out of that context and you are surrounded by all these fighters from everywhere in the world, you suddenly feel, you know, maybe there is an answer within these communities and then within maybe collaborating more with other people from other countries and then doing art or you know whatever you know just just do something with other people and that might not end the problems that are existing in our own places but that forms unity that forms a very strong community and I think we really need that you know in these very difficult times where we are facing our own problems but in fact it is one same problem in the whole wide world
2: yeah globalize the movement yeah i think that will be uh, far more pressure than local ones this should all snowball on every local issue and pressure using all of these troublemakers of the world and Mm. that will eventually make the criminals either go away Or stop being criminals.
0: And hopefully, other artists will hear this and relate to the struggle which they are going through in the words of the two of you and maybe even decide to take that first brave step. Hopefully, so.
1: Yeah, I think most people are just afraid and they have all this fear in them, which. They cannot see another way. I always view myself as that. I put myself in that experiment and then I try to show them with my actions that there are other ways possible. Like three years ago, I had a concert where all sponsors stayed away. And normally in Hong Kong, you have like sponsors backing you up financially. And that time I decided I would just launch a crowd sponsorship campaign, which meant if normally the the amount from corporate sponsors would be 1 million Hong Kong dollars, I chopped that up into 100 different pieces so small businesses could come and support me. And then finally, I had a support from 300 local businesses, which meant I had a sponsorship of 3 million Hong Kong dollars. So that surpassed the normal amount. And then I could do the same thing in an even more empowering way. So, I mean, you have to be really creative and then really flexible. At, you have to test many different ways. But then when you succeed, it empowers the people who are in support of you. And, you know, somehow, hopefully it shows the other artists that try, just put away the fear and then do things differently. So, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Be so inspired much.
0: by what you're doing. Um, keep thank it up, you. and thank I'll be watching. Thank and you I'm very sure much. A lot of others will a be watching. A lot as
3: of well. others will be watching. Yeah.
0: One of the reasons the Oslo Freedom Forum is such an amazing place is the convergence of so many figures from different walks of life, from activism to technology to politics. It's something of a stereotype that big-time artists and creatives are hardcore apolitical, but naturally, where else would you find the exception than at the OFF? It's so heartening to see, and I hope to see more of it in the months and years to come. And we don't demand that every artist immediately commit career suicide, or even actual suicide, by throwing themselves headfirst at the nearest brutal government. But speak to engaged activists even behind the scene, and you'll be surprised at what you can do. And we have another episode planned on when philanthropic and activist stunts by celebrities go very wrong out of ignorance. So there's that to look forward to. As for Hong Kong, the current wave of unrest began in late March. But since this episode was recorded, it has escalated dramatically. Nobody expected that they'd manage to sustain over three months of continuous resistance. And in the face of a belligerent government puppeteered by China, they've been courageous and incredibly creative. Be sure to follow Denise on Twitter and others, especially if you're not aware of what's going on. Amr and Denise touched on creativity in adapting to new business models in order to make yourself more resilient and prevent your livelihood from being cut off by authorities, which brings me to the reason for our absence over the last few months. As you know, At Kawakibi Foundation, we've been working on some incredibly sensitive investigations over the last year relating to the Gulf monarchies and their oppression, in particular the repressive insanity of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This resulted in a warning via the CIA that we're targets. We're a small and independent team, and we're pretty proud that we punch well above our weight class. Our main source of funding right now is our audience via Patreon. And if a small volunteer-led team with just over a hundred backers, is managing to threaten the most powerful dictators on earth into wanting to kill us. We're doing something right. That said, our capacity is incredibly limited. We have to pick and choose which projects and campaigns to work on and which battles to fight. Sometimes we can't maintain the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast and the website at the same time. With your support, though, we can scale up our capacity and publish more g- regularly. So please go to patreoncom kawakibi. To make a difference. The link is in the podcast description. Thanks to Khuloud and Sana for editing and to our existing Patreon backers for the equipment and software we use to produce this. I'm Ahmed Gatnash and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, a project of Kawakibi Foundation.
1: قلب ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيم يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيم